2013 is almost behind us, and if the Lord tarries, another year on planet Earth lies before us. It's a traditional time to look back and reflect before looking ahead. And as we look back, more often than not, we like looking back together. You know, we enjoy asking one another, do you remember when? You know, we like to relive experiences that we shared together. And it's actually the reviving of those common experiences that, that signal friendship. Because it's our shared experiences that bind us together. That's true in personal relationships in general, and it's true in the church. In fact, it was shared experiences that made such strong bonds between Paul and the churches he established. And that was especially true of the bond between Paul and the church at Ephesus because he spent more time with them than he did with any other church. After spending three years with them, and then being apart for a year or so, Paul was passing within 30 miles of Ephesus on his way to Jerusalem when his ship tied up at Miletus. He didn't have time to actually go to Ephesus because he was on a tight schedule to get to Jerusalem by Passover. But he couldn't pass up the opportunity to at least spend a little time with some of his friends from Ephesus so he sent for the elders. And yes, contrary to what some churches seem to experience, the preacher and the elders can be good friends. <laughs> we pick up the account in Acts 20, 17 and 18. And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time. Paul could honestly say he had been with the elders from Ephesus. He didn't just minister in Ephesus. He was with them in Ephesus. They did things together. They went through things together. They shared victories and defeats together. Now, he had shared with them three years of service to a mutual Lord. He had shared with them open and honest communication. And he shared with them a common sense of mission in life. He had indeed been with them. There was a closeness, a togetherness, a fellowship that they shared. And that's the way it ought to be in the church. But if we want closeness in the church, we need to share more than close proximity to one another in an auditorium. We have to get into each other's lives and ministry. 
We've got to share the same things that Paul shared with the Ephesian elders. A life of service to a mutual Lord, open and honest communication, and a common sense of mission. Because they shared these things, Paul could write, I was with you, serving the Lord with all humility and tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. You know, Paul thought of himself first and foremost as a bondservant of Christ. And while in Ephesus, he was serving the Lord, doing whatever his master wanted, serving as an apostle, a missionary, a teacher, a counselor, a tent maker. It didn't matter to him. He was doing what the Lord wanted him to do. Everything he did was in service to Christ. And he didn't do things alone. He didn't come into town and just do his thing for Christ. He came to serve Christ, but he came to serve with Christ's people. He served with them. They served together. And there were several things that made that togetherness in the church possible. And the first was, quite frankly, Paul's humility. It was his humility that enabled him to embrace others in the church and build a team in the church. He didn't come into town in finery and lord it over everyone. He didn't play games for status. He didn't put others down to exalt himself. He served in all humility. He realized that in a team, we have different responsibilities We have different gifts within the body, but no one is more important than anyone else. When writing to the church and Philippi, he said to them, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each one of you regard one another as more important than himself. That's the way Paul worked. And he learned it a good example, because that's the way Christ worked. In Philippians 2, 5 through 9, Paul went on to say, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's an amazing Christmas passage, is it not? God humbled himself. He took on flesh and dwelt among us. Humility is essential if we are to serve Christ. But a word of caution here. Humility is not 
self-abasement, putting yourself down. In fact, Paul warned the church in Colossae not to delight in self-abasement. Some people actually delight in that. You know, they love to put themselves down in the hopes that somebody's going to lift them up. Yeah. And it can appear to be very religious, you know, to, to, to mope around and to, to serve with, with a dour face and give the impression that you're not worthy of anything. Well, okay, we're not. But we've been made worthy through the blood of Christ. So humility is not self-abasement. Self-abasement looks religious, but it's self-made religion. It's not from Christ. Humility is not putting yourself down. It's realizing who it is that lifts you up and who it is that lifts up your brothers and sisters as well. Humility is a key attitude that we must have if we're to find unity and togetherness, and a team spirit in serving the Lord. It's essential. But it's not the only attitude. Paul also wrote that he served with tears. And that may seem a little bit strange. And some actually see tears as a sign of weakness and counterintuitive to leadership. Some even see tears as a challenge to their manhood. But it's vital to building togetherness in a church because you're not really with someone until you are emotionally connected to them. And you can't stay emotionally detached from your brothers and sisters and expect to feel like family. We've got to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. I've mentioned many times that, that our prayer time is, is, is an expression of extremes. You know, one moment we're almost crying together. The next moment we're laughing together. We need to be connected emotionally if we're going to become united as a family. Now, there is a risk to emotional involvement. You know, when you get emotionally involved with someone, you risk getting hurt. And that's why some choose to keep their distance, to to stay aloof. They don't want to get hurt. You know, Marilyn's mom wouldn't let them have pets as children because she didn't want them to experience the pain of losing a pet. And it worked but they never discovered the joy of a pet either, other than a squirrel who invaded their house one day. (laughs) You know, we've got to risk the pain to know the joy. So we have to get emotionally involved to really be with our brothers and sisters. We've got to get to know them. We've got to spend time with them. You know, I'm, as, as Paul can testify, I'm not a big game player. Do I hear an amen? Yeah, uh-huh. Board games are really tough for me. 
And the Hunley household is game central. And they got a new one for Christmas. I don't, what's the name of that thing? The one with the trees and you turn them upside down. And Enchanted Forest, that's it, that's it. And uh, got talked into playing that the other night. And, uh, you know, if seven-year-olds could play it, surely Grandpa could play it. <laughs> nah. Yeah. But actually, who won? Oh, Grandpa did. Yes, that's right, that's right. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Gee, Miracles do happen. Yeah, of course, they were rooting for it. The game had drug on for, what, two hours. Yeah. And they were going, come on, Grandpa, win. <laughs> but, you know, as, as, as much as I really don't like games, I play games with my grandkids. And, you know, we, we talked about New Year's Eve, bringing games. And you might say, well, why would I want to bring games? You'd be surprised how you can get to know someone playing some stupid game. <laughs> so I have obviously veered off from my text here uh, yeah I hear you but we've got to spend time together we've got to spend time together you know we've got to be together if we're going to be with one another we've got to be together and we have to stick together through good times and bad. Now, Paul said he served with trials, and you're not really with someone unless you're willing to go through trials with them. That's why we have marriage vows. Yeah, vows. A vow is a promise before God and witnesses that I will stick with you through what? Through the good times? Mm, yeah, but also, what? Through good and bad. Or how do we say that? Um, how many times have I said that? Mm, for better, for worse, that's it. For richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. Yeah. Yeah, okay, there's a coming back, yeah? Okay, all right. We've got to make that commitment to stick together in the bad times. And bad times do come. Bad times come to us personally. Bad times come to us congregationally. And it's sad. It's sad when... Bad times creep in and someone says, I'm out of here. We stick together. We stick together. We've got to be together. You know, as close as we can become in good times, we can become even closer in bad times if we go through them together. It's something we share that binds us together. You know, those who have served together in combat know a closeness that can never develop between card-playing buddies. It's the bad times, the trials, that really bring us together. 
And you'll never know what it's really like to be with someone until you commit to going through everything with them. If you want to know closeness in the church, serve the Lord with humility, tears, and trials. That's the place to start. But there's more. Paul was with them serving the Lord, and he was with them declaring the truth to them. Let's read on. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house. Paul says he didn't shrink from declaring what needed to be said. Now, we use the term shrink a little different form today. When you visit your shrink, I guess. Yeah. But shrink was a nautical term, heard on ship, that meant to take in the sail. Paul was saying that he didn't take in the sail when something needed to be said. He said it. And when you're really with someone, you can have open and honest communication about anything. You don't have to shrink from the truth. Now, again, a word of caution. That is not license to be hurtful. You know, some have the idea that being open and honest means they can say anything they want with no regard for feeling. But if what's said is not motivated by love and said thoughtfully, it can destroy closeness. If said in love, however, the same truth builds closeness. If two people are truly committed to each other, they have permission to say anything profitable, even if it hurts for the moment. The intent, however, can never be to hurt. But true friends can say what needs to be said and never shrink from the truth. So say what's profitable to your brother or sister, but say it in a loving manner, motivated by their best interests, but say it. And then, of course, remember, it's the Scriptures that are most profitable to us. For as Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good Open and honest communication between Christians, particularly between preacher and congregation and teacher and class, begins with a commitment to publicly proclaim the whole counsel of God. You must know that you are getting it all, not just selected parts. And that's why I preach straight through Bible books. You know, as long as I'm committed to the entire text, I can withhold nothing from you. 
you know, preaching through the text frees me to say everything. You know, years ago, it really hit me because I was preaching through Corinthians at the time. And there's some passages that deal with, if you know First Corinthians, there's lots of things. And one of them was, was sexual in nature. And as I was preparing that, I thought, this is, is kind of humorous. Because if out of the blue, the preacher stood up and preached on, you know what, everyone would go, what's going on? Isn't that true? But if we're preaching straight through the text, it's like, yeah, that's what God's Word says. And I'll never forget the week afterwards, I was talking to, I think some older ladies were working in the fellowship hall doing something. And I had two or three of them say, oh, that sermon was so good last Sunday. And I said, oh, that, that, that really helped me. And I'm going, mm, i got to get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> but if we're committed to preaching the whole truth, we deal with everything. Okay, you understand? That's so important. There has to be complete confidence that you're receiving the whole counsel of God. You know, I, I once heard a homiletics professor state that not every text is preachable. And it's true, not every text is going to be a, make a rousing sermon, but I disagree with his uh, assumption there because all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable if proclaimed faithfully. Holding back truth, even when it's politically or culturally unacceptable, is as bad as proclaiming false doctrine. Now, there's no point sometimes in talking with unbelievers about things we know that they will not accept. There's no, there's no point. But there can be no taboo topics in a family. A family must be able to talk about anything. Now, maybe not everything at the moment. As your kids are growing up, they may ask questions that you have to put off for a little while. But they should have the freedom to ask anything and confidence that you will tell them. Uh, now, I'm not going to go there. I really want to. Can I, Nikki? Sure. <laughs> He's not here. Carter asked a question. Uh, about babies. And he said he knew that it took a mom and a dad, but how did it all work? <laughs> and Nikki said, well, it's not time to tell you that yet. I'll tell you later. He says, when I'm eight? <laughs> she says, maybe not quite then. But there should be an openness, a freedom discuss anything in the family. Is that not true? And you should know that you're going to hear the whole truth. You may not get it all in one big dump load, but you know you're going to get it. That's essential. That's essential if we're going to be faithful. You know, as I said, there's, there's no need sometimes in taking parts of the message out into the world and proclaiming them in a way that we know the world will not receive it. That just brings scorn upon the church. 
you know, the whole Duck Dynasty thing. There's pros and cons to what Phil said and how he said it, and it's been kind of humorous to, to see what took place. There's a time and a place to say everything, and sometimes it doesn't serve the best interests of the kingdom for us to be too vocal in the world, okay? Especially if we know that they've already, they've already declared us to be bigots and heretics and who knows what for believing it. But that doesn't mean we keep silent in the church. We teach it clearly to each other. We teach it in our homes. We make sure we're raising up a generation who understands the truth in spite of the culture around us. Communication of the truth is essential. Essential. A family must be able to talk about anything. And the family of God must be able to openly discuss everything the Father has said. Paul taught publicly, openly in the church. But that wasn't the end of it. He also taught, he said, from house to house. Now, we're not exactly certain what he's talking about there. That could refer to teaching in house churches. It could refer to evangelizing door to door. Or it could simply mean teaching in people's homes. I tend to think the primary emphasis is simply that he taught in homes. And that is undoubtedly the best place for some teaching to take place, especially personal application of scriptural truth. You know, I like nothing better than to be invited to someone's home to seek biblical answers for questions they're facing. A public declaration of truth in the church is vital, but so is the private application of truth in one another's homes. When in need of answers, we should seek biblical counsel from the church. And when we are given counsel, we must know that the one doing the counseling from God's word is holding nothing back. If we're to be family, open and honest communication must take place publicly and house to house. Paul was with the Ephesians serving and declaring and testifying. Let's read on. Solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was a preacher. He declared truth in the church and he testified outside the church to Jews and Greeks alike. But he wasn't the only one testifying to the validity of the gospel in Ephesus. The gospel message we already have come to understand in our text had spread throughout Asia Minor. But Paul didn't spread it by himself. Those he taught taught others. And every believer 
could testify to the validity of the gospel because they had all experienced its life-changing power. Sometimes you're afraid to, to speak of faith matters to those outside the church. You feel yourself ill-equipped. Don't let the devil deceive you into believing that. If you understand who Jesus is and what he did, you've got something to say. You don't have to know all the theological ramifications of every statement that's made or every challenge that's been given. All you have to do is know Jesus and know what he did. It's very simple. And the message is the same for everyone. It doesn't matter who they are. And the message has really only two parts. The first is understanding the need for repentance, change. Repentance toward God. Paul says that's what we testified to Jew and Greek alike. The need for repentance toward God. Everyone needs to know that they need to get right with God. Everyone needs to know what sin is and what sin does. Everyone needs to know what God has declared to be sinful and how any sin at all separates a person from a holy God. Now, it's not our job to lay a guilt trip on anyone. Only the Holy Spirit can convict someone of their sin. But we do have an obligation to share the facts. The facts of sin. What it does and what it is. And then we testify how faith in Jesus brings us back into a right relationship with God and with one another. We share what he did for us personally on the cross. And we make it clear that he did that for everyone. That he died to make it possible for the person to whom we're speaking to come back into the family of God. Now that is a message everyone outside the church needs to hear. And it's the message everyone in the church needs to be telling. That's our common mission. Our common mission. Leading men and women into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ is not just the preacher's job. It's our job. Paul was with the Ephesians. They were truly together because they served a common Lord, they shared in God's word, and they had a common mission in life. Like them, we can find real togetherness in the church, but we'll have to do more than just go to the same church. We'll have to surrender 
our all to a common Lord. And as we enter into a new year, into 2014, let's commit ourselves to being even more with one another than ever before.